0: Well, let's go ahead and try to get started. Grab some breakfast, please. (laughs) You know, one great thing about this group. We've been eating the same burritos and the same coffee for like three years, and and nobody comes along and says, "How about a souffle? You know, how about some quiche?" Man, men, are easy. It's just, it's, it's good. Yeah. Well, this still still seems like a crazy dream. Uh, let's study Revelation at uh, six thirty in the morning. When it's fourteen degrees outside, but hey, why not, right? the The Book of Revelation obviously has a interesting place in our Scripture. Uh, challenging. We're always interested in it, uh, but it's uh, it's confusing. But today, I'm going to try to uh, give us a little. Uh, prelude to all that we're going to try to do in Revelation to sort of show where this type of writing and thinking and weird animals with horns and all that uh, developed. It's very much a product of Scripture. Uh, This type of literature that we're dealing with is different than, say, a gospel or just a history. And you guys know as well as I do it has been abused, twisted, morphed, used to the point of nonsense. And yet, it still has a powerful message for us, us to hear. So I need to begin with a big question. What do you do when God destroys your country? Start over? Yeah. Yeah. What what do you do when God says we're we're tearing all this down now? Start listening better. Yeah. <laughs> Realize it's time to grow up. Uh, it's it's a hard hard pill. You know the first portion of the old testament it's it's kind of fun and games right not really fun and games but god is with us god is building our country god's going to take care of us god's going to give us children god's going to give us inheritance god's going to defeat our enemies god's going to part the red sea yay yay and we we that that's the part that we we love we we tell that story god built the nation of israel and made them to be a lighthouse to the world But when you get to the second half of the Old Testament, it's really gone wrong. And God is not just raising a baby child anymore. He's trying to raise a righteous nation. He's trying to raise humanity. And so Israel has to deal with this incredible, hard question. God is against us. Now, he's not really. What he's doing is he's being a parent. He's growing you up. He's not babying you. But Israel has to deal with the fact that God's just not winning wars for them. He's not just taking care of them because they have changed as a people. And humanity changed as people. And so the latter half of the Old Testament, especially the prophets, there is this drive to understand why. Why does God seem against us? Why can we not defeat our enemies? Why are we conquered by one group after another? Now, I think this is so crucial for Christians. Because we get on the first half of the bandwagon, don't we? God is with us. God is going to save us. God's going to take care of us. God loves America. It doesn't matter what America does, does it? God's always going to be here with America. He's always going to stand for us. Now... Believe you me. That's certainly my heartfelt prayer. But have we been any better than Israel? No. And what happens when God says, all right, I don't want you all just to have signs on the door and say a bunch of things. I want you to be righteous people. I really do want you to be different people. I want you to do the right thing. I want you to be like me. And if you don't, then you're going to suffer the consequences for it. (laughs) That's that's hard. So Israel really, really struggles with this. I mean, all the prophets will go back and forth. How How do we get back on track? How do we grow up? How do we become who God wants us to be? And there was this driving force inside of them that there was a greater truth that was going on. It wasn't just a matter of winning battles. It wasn't just a matter of keeping our borders safe. It was about becoming the people God intended them to be. Now, praise to God that they did it, because this going through the crucible, the crush of figuring this question out is really what birthed uh, God's plan for salvation, the Gospels, all of this saving the entire world. But it was a really, really difficult time for about three Three centuries. Well, I shouldn't say it ended, but um, just one war after another, uh, losing the land, going into exile. But it led to this drive for their part to not just have history, but to have God's history, to understand what what is God doing? Now, did Steve talk last week about the apocalypse and all of that, uh, the word apocalypse? So what, what does apocalypse really mean? It's, it's revelation. It's, it's hidden truth. It's really what's going on. It's, it's the big picture. Now, I know a lot of this gets confusing because in English, when we say apocalypse, we are automatically talking about the end of the world and when Oprah Winfrey reveals herself to be the Antichrist, you know, all these weird things that that pop out. That's really where we've moved the word. Apocalypso, which is the, the revelation of what is hidden. And what is hidden is people's trying to understand is God with us? What does God want from us? What should we do? What, what really makes sense of this big, crazy world? So what was the apocalypse for Dallas going down yesterday? What, what is the big... <coughs> what happened to the best defense in the NFL? It got abused. They got... <laughs> it was cold. I want to go inside. It's being sent to the path of Righteousness. <laughs> yeah. What happens when God doesn't root for your football team anymore? <laughs> but so really what we tackle when we're we're going to look at this stuff is not just end times, not just how it ends, but how it's supposed to go. Really what is going on inside of all of this? What what is the meaning? Now, Part of this is challenging for us for lots of reasons, but because it comes out of definitely Jewish thought um, that's very different from Greek thought. We've talked about this a lot, but it's, it's good to keep ever before our mind. Um, in ancient Near Eastern thinking, so I would include in that Egyptian, Canaanite, Hebrew, They tend to understand things by simile. That's a better way for them to process it. But we're Greek, we're Western, and so we tend to deal with things in abstractions. So, for example, theology. Theology is what we love. Theology is this abstraction, this creating a systematic rules uh, that apply to God. Whereas the... Uh, apocalyptic way of approaching is to use uh, symbols, analogies uh, Jesus is like living water as opposed to he is the uh, sinless savior of the world. It's it's a different way of of looking at it <clears throat> This doesn't come natural to us and so we have to learn it <clears throat> The danger of all this is that people that really haven't studied this can abuse it and you guys know it <clears throat> There's, there's no end of line of crazies that try to interpret uh, what, what they're trying to explain um, in an inappropriate way. So it's early in the morning, and I thought I would bring toys. I brought some of these toys, but um, we'll, we'll start thinking. A um, little crash course into ancient Near Eastern symbolism. All right. So we take a look at this. What what is this thing? It's Egyptian. It's a statue. What what is it saying? Strength. It's what? Strength. Strength. Yeah. I'm the man. He he, he got his little thing at uh, Crunch. Uh, he's he's going to go to the gym and work out. So what we're gonna try to learn as we go through Revelation in particular is this is actually a paragraph. This is actually a statement. We we see it as as a statue, but in the symbolism that they're involving themselves in, uh, they're saying a tremendous amount. Uh, Not that they're making this up. I mean, there's specific rules, specific understandings that they have. I mean, think about how long we can have a conversation about dolphins and uh, bears and cowboys and stealers before a person would really say, what are you talking about? You know, how how did the dolphins, you know, just all that weird stuff. I I was in New York, um, got COVID, had a good time, not. Um, And uh, we were right at Wall Street and they have the bull out there. So people line up to take picture of the bull. I never realized, do you know what part of the bull they take a picture of? What is wrong with people? I mean, there's like Japanese standing next to the bull parts like, hey. So, how how do you explain that in you know five hundred years? Really, you went to New York and took pictures of so. <coughs> there, there's a lot of symbolism we still have in our language, um, but in order to to sort of get this, we have to get into the cultural milieu of of how they thought, what what they did. So. Um, Egyptian is unique in that a lot of hand signals, body signals are actually words. So actually what this guy is doing, he's completing the final ritual for a celebration. So they have this sort of thumping on their chest thing that they do. And this is the final, um, it, he's, he's celebrating. So it, as much as you can, you can see it, this is actually the word uh, to celebrate, Hanu so he's he's celebrating now he's kneeled in reverence uh, which will come back in a second he's uh, obviously got a bird head with a human body Uh, you'll see a lot of this uh, they merge elements of nature uh, with humanity to try to show what is powerful in nature uh, reflected on the divine This is one of two statues uh, that they would set up. Um, This is one of the ancestral gods. So there's a um, a jackal-headed one, and then there's a, uh, uh, my brain's not working, uh, hawk-headed, these are called the souls of Pei. So in, in a very shortened version, what this is saying is that the ancestors Are pleased with the faith of Pharaoh now it's it's just here in a statue it's just a picture and as we would read it in Daniel or something like that you would think okay there's a bird head guy with the arms crossed what what is that but once we sort of get the story once we get the, the the symbolism of the animals what what they're doing these things they click. There, there's not There's not this open-ended craziness uh, that you can make it be whatever you want. It really, within their culture, within their language, we can determine what they were doing. Today, as we start, I'll show you how this works in Daniel. So Daniel is like the best primer before you start Revelation, because what you see in Revelation started in Daniel in other places too, but mainly Daniel. And so we'll see in a biblical way what I just did here. Um, th- this is another fun one. Um, I had to have a copy made of this one. Um, I just like to pass this one around. So figure that one out. Okay. <clears throat> you have a dead skull attached to a fish. It's great at parties. Girls really, really like it. <laughs> the uh, it's it's the patron saint of fishermen, right? So in uh, e- Egyptian, much like. Uh, Hebrew, uh, sin is seen as that which is dirty, which is filthy. Uh, especially, uh, the Egyptians believed your body would rot uh, if you had sin in it. Which you know they're 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 not wrong, and so that's why you have the dead head. It's a it's a symbol that sin multiplies like a fish. That's that's a that's a pretty big statement, isn't it? The evil of man multiplies like fish. Yep. Uh, but, uh, what culture was that from? That's Egyptian. Yeah, yeah. These are all um, late 19th dynasty, so it'd be about the time of Moses. So I pulled these out because he would have, he, he would have recognized him. But um, I, I had dreams one day of giving that as an award to the greatest sinner in the church. Right. Sure. <laughs> The the sins of men multiply like fish. So get your brain around. When we uh, try to describe some of these things, we're going to use images from the natural world. We're going to use this sort of shared story of what elements of nature, elements of animals represent. And we'll try it. So let's take a look at Daniel eight. Everybody know the story of Daniel? What happened to our man, Daniel? Man on the street. Yeah. How old was he when he got taken? Yeah, 1516. He was a young man hauled off into exile. He was literate. And so he was useful to his new uh, first Babylonian and then later Persian masters. What's Daniel's big, deep, dark secret? He's a eunuch. Yeah. Uh, Babylonians don't allow, Persians especially don't allow uh, any other men around their women. And so the only way that you can serve these guys and be loyal is if you can't do any harm, (laughs) as it were. And so it's not just eating vegetables and all that stuff that he has to do. One of the saddest parts of Daniel's story, uh, and you'll see it with a few others, is when they try to uh, go back and rebuild the temple and all that kind of stuff. Not that Daniel really gets into that, but um, he can't go back because the eunuch can't be in the temple. So he paid an incredible price, but he was uh, incredible, uh, insightful, touched by God. And he is trying to understand this, right? He's trying to understand God, you gave Moses a staff to defeat Pharaoh, you showed him the burning bush. You've hauled me off into exile like Moses, but I don't have any of these tools. I'm not able to lead my people out. What, what are you doing? How, how is this working? What's happening in the world? And I'm sort of jumping right in the middle of it, but God begins to see or to show uh, Daniel visions from what will happen from his day to the end of days. So it's it's a big chunk of history, but it is perfectly captured with what we know has happened and we believe what will happen. So just jumping in the middle of it, Daniel 8, verse 1. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision. And you really could, uh, in the Hebrew sense... Take apocalypse. I mean, it's a Greek word, but um, put it in there for vision. Following one that had already appeared to me. This time I was in the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. So he is deep in Persia. And boy, have you ever been to Persia? Beautiful country. Oh my gosh. Um, No, it's like a kitty litter box. Um, It's not... That's why I think the Persians are so mean. (laughs) But anyway, verse 3. As I looked up, I saw in front of me a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had begun to grow later than the shorter one. The ram butted everything out out of its way to the west. To the north, to the south, no one could stand against it or help its victims. It did as it pleased and became very great. Sure. Have ram on the you have a ram on your pickup? Oh, yeah. But make sure the horns match, right? What's what's wrong with this this ram? Got short horn Yeah. yeah. What causes that? Does anybody know? I don't know. Just <laughs> an injury on one side. Of the other, yeah. So this is the great time when we sort of get to pool on our our experience. If if you raised farming or ranching at all, and then trying to to put it in. <clears throat> Some kind of context uh, that the biblical uh, they would have understood, so generally speaking what what is what is a ram I mean if it, sheep. It, it's sheep yeah it's the mightiest and most powerful of animals right no no it's it's kind of dirty <laughs> it's kind of uh, it 's not exactly a billy goat, but a ram is not exactly uh, the the most noble and powerful creature but what what is this ram doing? yeah <clears throat> it 's fighting it 's fighting off to the west it's it 's dominating uh, north, south, east, and west, although it 's primarily pushing itself towards the west. So this instantly gives us a sense of what Daniel is talking about. He is now in the east with the Persians. And the Persians do have this kind of randy goat uh, reputation. They were, well, before they became great uh, empire conquerors, what were the Persians? Horse riders. Horse riders, yep. They were just another step people that came off of the plains uh, their great claim to fame was uh, fermented goat milk and pants. Um, never thought those pants would take off, but um, everybody else was obviously wearing um, skirts and that kind of stuff. And so, pants uh, pants were good for horseback riding, but the uh, the Persians. And it's complicated because there's Persians and Archimedeans and all that, but we'll just call them Persians today. They are kind of the rotten old goat. I I keep saying goat and I need to stop because it's a ram, but um, it it has something wrong with its uh, head, its rulership. Is that very effective when you have one horn that's bigger than another? It's unnatural, and so that's one of the things that you always want to look for. If these animals have red colors, different crowns, different size of horns, um, they're, they're trying to tell you something is different. So, I know it's weird. We'll just let it sauce for a minute and weird. Um, pick up at verse 5. He's continuing the story. Now there's a goat. While I was watching, suddenly, a male goat appeared in the west. So this is an enemy of the Persians that's far to the west. He crossed the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat had, been, had one very large horn between its eyes, headed... I'm messing this up. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed towards the two-horned ram, that I had seen standing beside the river. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck it, breaking off both of its horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked it down and trampled it. There was no one who could rescue the ram from the goat's power. So we go from one kind of rough barnyard animal that had been uh, conquering and, and killing, and now there's a goat, and a goat is always worse than the lamb, or always worse than the the ram, right I mean they're they're just nasty, so who would be to the west of persia Greece, Greece. Alexander, yeah <clears throat> that's exactly where Daniel is going with this. If you remember some of your early classical history, Persia spread very fast, very powerful. They were not a particularly great, glorious people, but they were conquerors. And so in short order, even though they constantly had this struggle for power, uh, the secession... process in Persia is always revolution. Every time the king dies, he has multiple kids. This is a product of these harems. And then everybody fights. They kill everybody. And you get these wonky kind of, well, this horn should be here. That horn should be there. But for this time period, uh, Persia was was everything. And then out of the blue comes Alexander of Macedon, who if Persians were rough people uh, the, the Macedonians were seen as absolute barbarians. Even though other Greeks don't even really consider them uh, Greek. But he conquers this Persian Empire in incredible speed. I think uh, Netflix is doing a pretty good uh, series on it coming up at the end of this month. You might give it a watch <clears throat> only because <clears throat> in Daniel uh, Alexander the Great plays, plays a, a huge role sorry I'm losing my voice let me grab some more. <clears throat> so I take you all this through to give us an intro into this and to show we're not just making this stuff up there is an absolute primer there's, there's a rule to this so jump down to chapter 8, verse 18. So Daniel has seen all these goats, he's seen this, and realized this is still very much in his future. To try to, he, he doesn't know Alexander's name. He knows there's a goat that's coming from the west. Uh, he knows generally probably the people, but he doesn't know a name. But now the apocalypse happens. The the revelation happens. 18, Gabriel is going to explain it to him. So chapter 8, verse 18. He's speaking to Gabriel. While he was speaking, I fainted and laid there on the ground. (laughs) Which, that's a good Bible study when you pass out. But Gabriel roused me with a touch. Get up. And help me to my feet. <clears throat> then he said, I'm here to tell you what will happen later in the time of Wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. These are the various tribes that make up uh, the what we will call the Persian or Parthian Empire. So that was all the horns mess we were talking about. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. It's interesting, they say Katim. It's not really Greece, it's Katim. It's the Westerners. So in Hebrew, they don't make a difference between a Greek and a Roman. They're all Katim, um, which is, (laughs) they're all the same. But the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And a large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire, which was Alexander. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show the Greek Empire will break into four sections with four kings. None as the great as the first. And so, what happens when Alexander? You know what Alexander died of? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nasty boy. Um, but so he he dies, and what happens? Yes. Yeah, his generals take over, and they will divide up his really massive empire into four sections. So we get the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Antigonids, and I'm forgetting one back in Macedonia. So I know it's the Bible, and you expect all these things, but this is dang impressive. You're talking about events about 300 years before they happened. And I don't say that just a matter of faith. We can date this Hebrew. Uh, this is Aramaic, late Hebrew in Aramaic. Uh, so he, Daniel is really beginning to speak the language of his masters. And he's speaking about events that won't happen for, for almost three centuries. It is, it's amazing. Um, but all that being said... Does that make any kind of sense with the animals and the heads and the and all that kind of stuff i mean it's it's a little straightforward isn 't it? They didn 't mean um, real estate prices will go up in California because the goat has i mean no. They they were talking about two randy groups of people, the battle that they would go through, horns representing their power, and that God is aware of this shift of power. Well, what I'll just ask you what what is God's relationship to Alexander? Alexander's favor. He what? Alexander yeah oh yeah definitely yeah pagan's pagan Alexander is not a a messiah he's not a deliverer he's not a Moses but this is the flow of history Uh, and God is using the history using the battle of these animals in order to advance his kingdom because right in the middle of it (coughs) continues to be Israel so all right let me stop is this, is this too crazy? <laughs> yeah. All right, let me take us to Ezekiel 1. So we've had our, our little baby, baby walk. Now we're going to get heavy deep into it. What does God look like? It's not that we suffer for lack of descriptions of God, although He is probably beyond what we can describe as we'll see here. But Ezekiel 1 gives us the most complete description of God in an appearance in all of Scripture. And it is absolutely steeped in what we just did. So let me, uh, for time's sake, start us out Ezekiel 4. This is God leaving the temple. Now that is horrendous. Uh, God is moving out. Uh, there's various reasons for that. The people have sinned. They've sacrificed children. And... God is leaving. You know, he's going to come back, but he in his full panoply of, of glory, he's he's leaving. So this will be witnessed by Ezekiel very much in this apocalyptic information. So again, he's not just talking about the end of the world, he's trying to show the greater truth. People see a run-down temple, they see it falling apart. They see God doesn't seem to be on our side anymore. So Ezekiel wants to see what, what is really going on. What is I hate to use this, but what is the spiritual truth? And here it comes. Verse 4. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming towards me from the north, driving in a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with bright lights. So the very first thing God is described as? is what storm bright light. bright light yeah again this takes us back to mount sinai where god appears but there's this cloud uh, like a massive thunderhead that sort of stands between us and him sort of uh, protection probably for both sides um we, we have some pretty great thunderstorms here, but I remember as a kid in the late summers in El Paso, wow, um, the hot days, you get some really powerful thunderstorms, and it, it, it can be a powerful image. But here's this light uh, that seems to be coming from the where? What does it mean when the weather comes from the north? Same thing it means for us. Yep. Buckle up, boys and girls. This is, this is an event of great significance. The fire inside glowed like the gleaming of ember. So again, they're not saying... This abstract light force, that transcended material existence, descended. no They're saying, it looks like when you're, you're playing with a fire and there's amber down there, you know you've, you've got the, the coals really, really growing, glowing, it's, uh, it's bright and it's powerful. From the center of the cloud came, and my translation says, four living beings." does your say cherubim creatures? Creatures, Yeah. We have a hard time with this word. Um, it's cherubim, um, cherubim, where we get our word. And they're basically sphinx creatures, sort of like what we're talking about here. But um, we'll see how they put the animal parts together. Okay. So hold this in your mind. We have a light. The light is covered. It's this orange, golden light. Um this cloud then is, has four types of, uh, we'll just say, sphinx creatures, cherubim, um, that are in the cloud. Uh, they each looked human, okay, in reference probably to their heads. Um, each had four faces, and they had two pairs of wings, Their legs were straight like human legs, but their feet were split like calves' feet and shone like burnished bronze. Beneath each of their wings I could see human hands. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Somebody just go ahead and sketch that real quick for me. Um, Now, of all the stained glass that we do... Of all the pretty pictures, of all the I saw Jesus, you know I had a dream, and oh, I saw his beautiful blue eyes. How come we never do this? I mean, here it is. You want it? You got it. You, you with CGI and AI, we can do amazing things. I want your kids to work on this. (laughs) It's uh, it's it's amazing stuff. So. First of all, what are they describing? So this is an appearance of God, and what are they describing? Characteristics, Characteristics of God. They're not describing God himself. We don't get, he's an old man in there with a white beard. You know, what God that would make him? Zeus. You don't want that God. He's he's beyond just a a physical human form. He's he's something, something quite different. But these creatures, and they're doing the same thing that we started off with, these creatures are reflecting elements of the power of nature that are reflected back towards God. So it's, like an adjective, using to describe the noun here. Uh, but these adjectives are done by, by simile. Why would they have four faces? Yeah, we'll, we'll see their movement is, is important in a minute. But they're representing all four. We'll see this. Um, each had a human face, had a lion face, a ox face, and an ego face. So the most powerful sort of representations of strength, power, speed, intelligence, are these attendants to God. So these cherubim are these sort of conglomerations of the power of what God has created that is reflected back towards God. And I always blow my mind when I have this conversation We tend to look at these backwards, right? If these cherubim really have existed as long as the scriptures say they have, our animals look like them. They don't look like our animals. I mean, they're sort of the original conglomerate of this. So, you've got four faces. Uh, It means they're intelligent, they're powerful, they're strong, and they're fast. Why would they have two pairs of wings? Yeah, they're fast, they're powerful. Particularly with angels, um, what do you do in God's presence? You bow down, yeah? And? You worship? Oh, come on, mama get mad at you. It's like washing your hands. What did God say to Moses when he appeared at the burning bush? Take off, Take off your shoes. This is, again, we've got to know their their culture. Um, so we know they have human feet, or something like calves' feet, human feet, but you do not, even as an angel, stand in the presence of God. There's uh, lots of reasons for that. What does the foot generally represent in, uh, in Hebrew thinking? Yeah, your little bits. So most angels will cover their eyes because they cannot even look at God. And often they'll cover their feet as well um, because they are barefooted. They, they can't, st- even they, as bizarre and powerful as they see, uh, can't stand in God's presence. So again, consistently have this great image of light, of power, of elements of nature coming together. Uh, These living beings were able to fly in any direction without turning around. Each had a human face in front, the front of a lion, the front on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle on the back. Each had two pairs of outstretched wings, one stretching out to touch the wings of the living being on the other side, and the other pair covered its body. They went in whatever direction the spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without having to move around. So, again, abstraction will make you crazy here. What are they describing as these creatures with their movement? How do people move? This is probably, well, this is hard, but... that that's perfect that's perfect they're telling you these things are timeless they 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 can move and do whatever uh th- that they can by the power of the spirit so exactly as Brent's saying they're they're not like us point a to point b kind of creatures uh, they are they are these eternal super powerful things that exist in god's presence And they're reflecting the complete, absolute power that is God. Uh, So instead of saying God is omnipotent, He's the power that cannot be stopped, He's the one that can uh, create a mountain that He can't move and then He moves it, all of that stuff that we tend to do in Greek, this is the way they're describing it. So I'm going to stop there. Have I completely befuddled and frozen your brain? I take you to this because this is what we're going to start in Revelation. We don't have time to unpack all the Ezekiel and Daniel stuff, unfortunately, but the same question that we had at the end of the Old Testament is the same question that we had at the beginning of the church. If the gospel has come, if Jesus is here to take care of us, why are so many of us being killed? Why is there evil, evil like Nero and uh, others we'll get to, that are, are crushing the church, slaughtering. Why is there so much blood? If the kingdom is supposed to rise and change the world, why isn't it happening? Why is the church so persecuted? So John, receiving a revelation that overlaps in many, many ways to what Ezekiel and Daniel saw, is going to continue the vision and he's going to come to understand the kingdom is here. It's coming into the world. It's transforming the world. But the world is still fighting against it. And unfortunately, there's that battle within us. So. My homework for you is to go home and take the antiviral medications for COVID and read these verses before you go to sleep. And you will have all sorts of insight and understanding into goats and calf people. And it will be fun. If that doesn't work, we'll just start drinking. Anyway, well, I hope a little primer helped this morning to get us at least off cold start. Any questions? I think that the span of time, you know, like from Exodus to enter into Egypt was generations, right? Right. And the fall and the exile and back was multiple generations. Do you think that affects, affects maybe how does it affect that mindset of what are you doing, God, when it's kids and kids and kids and kids that saw the effect first time? No, I, that's, that's a brilliant question. Uh, You know, it's 400 years uh, for one generation. That's a lot of time to tell those stories. And you're wondering, God, are you going to show up? Are you going to help? Are you going to do anything? Um, I don't know. I mean, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but how how are we doing as a nation? I mean, we've told those stories since World War II. And uh, I'm not sure we're doing better. But I think we have the chance to do better, please Lord. Um, for the church to awake again and become what it can be. People don't wait well. Puppies and people, we don't we don't wait well. So Any other questions? all right well it's getting warm out there so we better hit it let's pray gracious lord we thank you for the intro into a hard different world but a world in which you have so much to show us help us O lord as we begin to to march up this great hill to see that it's not just about strange things but it's about a very familiar god Whether You spoke to us in an ancient way or in a modern way, it's Your desire that we become different people. We become good people. This life is the packaging. As You have said in Your Word, this tent will come down and we will leave this place. All the things that we did to entertain ourselves or convince ourselves we were right or wrong will pass away. And the truth of what You're trying to show us in Your Word will be what lives on. So help us to study what you studied, to be able to speak the way you spoke, and to know there is a much greater truth going on behind our day today. We need to see it and be part of it. And be mindful that this kingdom of yours that started with Daniel is here today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.